All right, welcome to episode 10 of the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. You can find our print edition through the newsletter on higgins.substack.com, E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S.substack.com. And thank you. Uh, today is January 22, which means that it is the one-year anniversary of the riot from last year where a right-wing mob tried to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 election and officially naming Joe Biden president. And in the, you know, since that event over the last year, we've seen a lot of right-wing attempts to kind of take over democratic institutions at the local and state level. A lot of them having to do with election certifications, uh, and that's been a worrying trend. But as my guest, Osita Wanevu, who is a contributing editor at The New Republic and writing a highly anticipated book on American democracy rights for The New York Times, those institutions already shoulder a lot of the blame for what happened. And I'm, I'm going to quote the article here. Quote, the riot was an attack on our institutions and, of course, inflammatory conservative rhetoric and social media bear some of the blame. But our institutions also helped produce that violent outburst by building a sense of entitlement to power within America's conservative minority. The structural advantages of the electoral system are well known. Twice already this young century, the Republican Party has won the Electoral College and thus the presidency while losing the popular vote. Republicans in the Senate haven't represented a majority of Americans since the 1990s, yet they've controlled the chamber for roughly half of the past 20 years. In 2012, the party kept control of the House, even though Democrats won more votes. And later on, uh, Osita writes, with these structural advantages in place, it's not especially difficult to see how the right came to view dramatic political losses when they do occur as suspect. And I think that this is a really good way of looking at January 6th and in in context, because I think that a lot of the time it's reduced to a singular event, a singular moment, when it's kind of the result of a continuation and an, and an ongoing issue. So, uh, Osita, is that, is that a reasonable interpretation of, of what you wrote? And, and uh, would you like to introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about, about the essay? Sure. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I, I've been really heartened by the response people have, have had to the essay. Um, because I, I think what I, what I really tried to do is exactly what you said. Like I, I tried to put the events of last year in a broader context, in a context that I don't think most of the commentators who've written about what happened um, have been willing to um, bring to their readers and audiences. I mean, we've heard a lot about the sixth as an attack on America's democratic institutions on, on, you know, the meaning of democracy, um, obviously was, is a physical assault on, on the citadel of the American political system. And, you know, that's, it's true in some senses, uh, but what the, what the piece is really about is the extent to which we can also understand the sixth as the product of those very same institutions that we, um, now tell ourselves are being threatened and attacked. Uh, the most obvious thing is, is Donald Trump being president in the first place, right? He was brought to the White House in 2016 
um, because the electoral college system put him there over the will of the American electorate. He stayed in office because the Constitution put such a high barrier to removal from office um, that the Democrats didn't really have a hope of, of achieving it in the Senate. Um, so those are sort of the obvious ways in which the institutions can be <laughs> thought of as, as having produced Trumpism and brought, bring him to power in the first place. But the, the broader thing I also try to say in the essay is we have a political system that produces outcomes um, where if you're not really that knowledgeable about how the system works and the way it was designed, you can tell yourself a story in which, you know, Trump came to the White House and Bush came to the White House and Republicans have all this power in the Senate and Republicans control the judiciary because uh, America is fundamentally a conservative country in some way. Right. If we're, if we're seeing those outcomes, we're not really interrogating, thinking about the underlying structures at work. I think there are a lot of people in the country who say to themselves, well, we have these outcomes because the great bulk of the electorate is conservative in some way. And this is just a reflection of that. Uh, when, you know, you know, and I know, and people who, you know, study the history and, and political scientists, you know, we, all of us more, you know, knowledgeable people understand that what's actually happened is our political institutions uh, have been designed in such a way that the constituencies that have taken really easily to conservative ideology, the constituencies that Republicans are really strong with, happen to be the ones um, most empowered disproportionately uh, by the design of things like the Senate, by the Electoral College. And that's why we have center-right uh, to right-wing outcomes. Um, but if you're sort of out there, an average Joe kind of voter um, who's conservatively minded, I think that a large number of those people say to themselves, well, we're the legitimate electorate. And when you do have things like Biden winning or an Obama winning, you then begin to tell yourself a story that the legitimate American majority has been undermined, usurped in some skullduggerous, uh, underhanded way, right? Uh, you know and I know that what's actually happened is the Democratic Party, facing increasingly long odds uh, to gain power, managed to eke out, <laughs> you know, a kind of a closed victory, um, legitimately. But I think for a lot of people, that there's this sort of narrative that's been built up about America being a conservative country um, that leads people to reach for explanations when they don't get their way as conservatives and, and right-wing people. And that's something that I think is, is fostered. Um, this, and the sense of entitlement to power is what I describe it as in the piece. Um, I think our institutions have fostered that really for a long time within uh, the right. Yeah, yeah. I. And I think kind of, you know, jumping off of that, that the sense of entitlement that comes out of that, it, it manifesting itself in that moment of violence, especially with the way that you kind of lay it out, it makes a lot of sense that that, that would have led this conservative minority to, to engage with... Uh, with the electoral system in this violent way. And I'm wondering, you know, at, and, and I, and this has been, this has been said by a lot of different people. I think, you know, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but you know, is, is it possible? Are, are we going to have another election in the foreseeable future where it's seen as legitimate by uh, both sides? Right. Because, you have a situation like in 2016 where, and, and, and I'm not really trying, I'm not trying to liken them exactly, but um, the shock of Trump winning, you know, without winning the popular vote, of course, but 
uh, through the Electoral College was so great that a lot of the reaction to that was this kind of anger and and um, disbelief that something like this could happen. And I feel like we're kind of seeing the same thing on the other side um, from the right wing, of course, it's, it's manifesting itself in different ways. And they're just straight up saying that it, you know, it wasn't legitimate and they're making that a part of their, uh, I mean, like the GOP right now is controlled by Trump in, in the sense that if, if you believe that the 2020 election was legitimate, you're out of political power. But the reason that I bring up the Democrats in 2016 is just to say that, you know, th- there's this sense on both sides, and I'm not trying to both sides it again, but there is this general sense that the institutions are breaking down. Um, and I am honestly just wondering at what point we come to the point where no matter who wins, half of the country is going to automatically think that uh, that it was just an illegitimate election. Do you think that that's a fair way to put it? Yeah, I mean, I guess the short answer to your question is no, I don't think in the foreseeable future we're going to have an election where it's going to be recognized by both sides as being um, legitimate. I think there's from here until, you know, as long as, as anybody cares to imagine, um, we're going to be in a place where um, people are going to be unhappy uh at a level beyond just being unhappy that they lost, just that unhappy because there's a sense in which the system at large um, is rigged against them. I happen to believe one side of that argument is, is better than the other. Um, but but no, you're right. I think I think we're going to be in a place for a long time in our politics where that is the case. I mean, the, the right the right wing aspect of this is easier to sort of wrap your head around, um, uh, or or easier to sort of to talk about. I mean. You, I think people forget this, but in 2016, Trump claimed that there was going to, there was voter fraud in that election, right? <laughs> the election that he won. It, it, and his argument was, you know, well, I, I should have won by more. And there was some fraud going on in California, whatever, with with immigration that suppressed the, the amount that he'd won by. And, you know, he'd have these interviews where he'd bring out these maps, whatever, and, and talk about that. So it was completely inevitable that he was going to, in an event that he lost, um, dispute the outcome of that election. It shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. Um, but I think you're also right that at least for democratic elites, I mean, this is where it gets a little conflict, at least for democratic elites, I think that there is this sense now that the system is skewed in the ways that I've been talking about. Um, and that concern is going to sustain itself for some time. I don't know whether or not the democratic electorates or sort of the broad generic Democratic voter out there is quite as attuned to these structural inequities as the people at the top of the party and people like me and you are right now. I think that there's a lot of fear and apprehension about what Republicans are going to do in 2024 um, about attempts to overturn election results and fraught votes. I think there's a lot of anxiety about that. I think there's a lot of anxiety about voter suppression in the South. I don't know that there is an enough anxiety amongst ordinary Democrats right now about the Senate and it's kind of long term um, the long term challenges it poses to democratic power and and the the long-standing democratic inequities there I think the extent that there's been polling on this question you know Pew I think a few years ago asked people if they thought the Senate uh, was was fair and if, if they thought equal apportionment was fair most people kind of say yeah 
then, you know, it makes sense to me because that's, that's what they're taught in school, right? In civics class, you're told that the system has been balanced in this intricate way that, that shouldn't be questioned. Um, and as much as I think ordinary, you know, average Democrats are being encouraged to think about um, democracy right now, if that's a democracy, I don't think they see that the, the, the underlying design of the system as the threat. I think they see bad actors on top, people like Donald Trump and his enablers, as being the key threat there. And that's an impression that's only going to be reinforced if you have days like today where all that Joe Biden, you know, is really talking about, all Nancy Pelosi is really talking about is um, what happened on the 6th within the context of, you know, Donald Trump being a bad guy and Donald Trump being somebody who brought the Republican Party to this point. If that's the only conversation we're having, um, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to, you know, push forward the reforms that are that are plausible right now and feasible right now um, to rebalance the system, things like D.C. statehood and avenue states and and just the Supreme Court and all this stuff that, you know, people like me have been writing about for a long time now. If, if the conversation is just about the sixth within the context of, you know, these, these bad people came to the Capitol and threatened an un- otherwise okay system, then we're, we're going to be in a bad place for a long time. Um, so I guess that's a really long-winded way of answering your question. But I, to, to sum it up, um, I think that in 2024, we're going to have an election where neither side is really going to be, you know, both sides are not going to be united in their sort of approval of, of, of the process. At least one half of the country is going to be mad about it. If Democrats are mad about it and, um, you know, they, they lose out to Donald Trump or whoever else, I don't know that they're going to be mad for the right reasons or all of the right reasons, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's a good distinction um, because if, if we're looking at another January 6th kind of event um, in 2025, I guess, uh, well, I mean, I, first of all, I don't think that it's going to be coming from the left. I think it would be if if Biden or or whoever succeeds him, you know, won the election. But uh, the the Democrats, if 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 they do lose, I think it's a very good point to say that if they just blame it on Trump or they just blame it on on some other kind of malevolent outside force, they are missing what the real issue is here, which are these systems that you describe. And I, I, I personally find that I've, I've been trying to struggle with, with how to put that idea into words because there's so much, there's so much going on with like the discourse around January 6th right now that, you know, you can say something and, and it can come out wrong. Well, if you're me, you can say something and it can come out wrong. Uh, but my my real concern and fear here has always been that this hyper focus on Trump and this hyper focus on the singular day of January sixth is really disruptive to actually doing anything about the systemic issues. Um, and I I am curious as to your thoughts on what. Republicans and and the GOP, this kind of Trump-controlled GOP, have been doing over the past year to take over like these these local election boards and to kind of infiltrate the system in order to make sure that something like the twenty uh, twenty election doesn't happen again. I mean, does that does that fill you with a little bit of 
distress or or do you see that as not really dis, uh, distinctive from the ongoing disruption of the election system? And if you're just joining us, um, uh, my guest is Osita Wainevu, uh, contributing editor at New Republic. And Osita, please go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, all of that stuff that's happened at the state level is definitely worrisome. The, the fact that you have these election officials now who are, you know, directly or indirectly tied to what happened on the 6th, perpetuating it as a movement now across the country. Um, you know, only time will tell, you know, uh, by the time we get to 2024, whether or all of that power that's being accrued now um, is, is sufficient to do what Trump failed to, to do um, in this past election. You don't really see anything that's happening on the Hill. Um, the Democrats really haven't succeeded in doing anything to, to forestall or prevent that. All of their election um, reform bills, voter protection bills, none of that's passed. Um, you know, supposedly we're, they're focusing on that now instead of BBB because it's, they have a better chance of, of that succeeding. I don't know if that's, that's the case, but it's the story people are telling. Yeah, but yeah, I think the people should understand definitely that the January 6th, uh, as bad and as harrowing as that day was for a lot of reasons, um, was only the beginning. Um, not, not even, it doesn't even make sense to call it the beginning, actually. It was only one, one event in an on, in, you know, a longstanding trend on the right uh, to be more and more hostile to democratic processes, to think uh, with more and more hostility about democrat- democracy as, as a form of government. Um, it, w- it was only one kind of signal uh, of something that's been going on for a long time that, that's continued uh, behind, you know, behind the scenes and, and away from the cameras uh, at levels of government that don't get as much focus uh, as, as, you know, the, the ins and outs of, of Washington do. But I also wanted to talk about January 6th as, um, you know, and it, it, like you, like you, I, I don't really want to trivialize what happened on that day because it, it was, it was a bad day um, and, and a scary day for people, you know, in the Capitol, I think frankly more about, um, as somebody who's, who's worked in the Capitol, um, I think more about the, you know, the ordinary staffers there, just, just regular folks who are working as janitors or uh, in the kitchens there who were probably, you know, facing more of a threat than, than politicians with bodyguards and security detail on that day. You know, it was a horrible day for them. Um, so I don't, want, I don't want to trivialize what happened there. But to my mind, what, the day that stands out to me as being maybe the worst of the Trump presidency, um, there's a lot of competition. Uh, it was the day of the, the Pittsburgh shooting. Uh, somebody comes into a synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, frothing about migrant caravans uh, and, and kills 11 people. Um, and it was a different kind of event and it was a different kind of an attack. But to my mind, they happened for the same reasons, right? You have this sense, again, on the right, that there is a legitimate American public, a legitimate American electorate, and there are efforts afoot to subvert their power. Um, immigration is a big part of the story that people tell themselves. That was that was the driving animus uh, that that stoked all the fears about the migrant caravan. Um, but it was, you know, it's, it was the very same animus that I think that brought people to the to the Capitol on the sixth. The sense that something that was legitimately the rights, something that legitimately the, the power that legitimately belongs to conservative America is being robbed from them. 
and it necessitates radical action. Um, that's that's the feeling. That's the motivation that caused both events. That's that's the feeling. That's motivation. That's that's driving the attempts to set, lay the groundwork in in 2024 for um, Trump's you know victory uh, through whether state legislatures or, or election officials. That's that's the anxiety or the idea behind all of it, and it's it has to be sort of directly confronted. And as we directly confront that, you know, as my piece argues, we should also confront the fact that our institutions have had a role in building up that mentality and making it potent on the right um, and distorting people's sense of what the American political landscape actually is. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that that is I mean, that you know, for me that's one of the more interesting things about the American political machine and the way that the media um, and, and American politics in general kind of frames its own existence. I'm reminded of there's, there's this 2013 uh, University of Berkeley paper, uh, and I realize that's eight years ago, but it showed that Lawmakers from both parties thought that their constituents were several percentage points more conservative than they actually were. Um, and I wonder how much how much that has to do with is, is this kind of a self-perpetuating cycle where it is uh, partly what you're talking about, this idea? It, well, you talk about in the piece, this idea that, you know, if America wasn't a conservative country, you wouldn't have conservative governance and it, you know as long as you don't really look at that in any more detail that makes sense or uh do you think that it's it's something more than that um it, at, at what at, it, at what point is it kind of systemic and at what point is it uh an intentional move by by people on the right to to frame things this way i think it's a little bit of both i mean i think that there there's um certainly amongst the conservative elite a level of self-awareness about this and and the design of our institutions that might not be there for just sort of the average Joe voter. Um, I, I really do think that there are a lot of conservatives who just think that most of America, <laughs> most America is, is 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 conservative and things like them. And, and the only people who are caught into uh, moderate liberal or left wing politics are people who are sort of uh, cloistered on the coasts and. Uh, there's this vast country in between them that, that represents the real country, and and that's where the bulk of everybody, you know, who matters actually lives. I think I think there are people who are walking around and you go into the voting booth with that mentality, and it's one that's not just fostered by conservative elites who are doing political propaganda um, or active propaganda for their side. It's, it's something that you also find reflected in coverage of politics by the mainstream media. I mean, what do we do? before and after every election. We go out to the middle of the country, uh, we find this diner, uh, and she's a moderate or conservative-seeming white person, and we ask them what they think about American politics, and this is that candidate, and this is that policy proposal. And that's the voice of the country. That's what every candidate has to appeal to and uh, tailor their message to. And obviously, it's a political reality, given the design of the system, that voters... Um, in these kinds of places matter more than other kinds of voters. But but I think the point I'm making is that nobody ever questions 
whether or not that's just or fair. It's just sort of taken as a given that this is the way things are and have to be, that there are people who really matter in American politics. And it makes all the sense in the world that nobody would go um, to an apartment complex in New York City or Los Angeles or where I live in Baltimore to ask with them what they think about American politics or a federal election and what policies they need. Right? Nobody, nobody, nobody in political media ever asks that question, ever. Um, it's partially the product of our institutions, but I think we can do better as an industry if we really care about uh, political journalism, um, not just as a sort of reflection of um, the horse racing comp- competitive aspects of politics, but as something that can illuminate and um, interrogate basic political structures and tell people more about how um, their system of government works. I think we have a responsibility to question, to test the premises that underpin the system that we take for granted. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there is a level of intentional obfuscation about this um, in some corners, particularly on the right. But I also think that there is um, a lot of elite blindness and indifference to the underlying mechanics of the American political system that we ought to uh, hack away at. Yeah. And, you know, I I wanted to ask you about uh, kind of in the same vein, one of the lines from, from your article that I had, I had kind of a question about this. And it says, given demographic trends, power in Washington will likely continue accruing to Republicans, even if the right doesn't undertake further efforts to subvert our elections. Uh, and my question is, you know, g- given everything that we're talking about here and about who's, whose voices are being prioritized, um, it does seem like the demographic trends are a little bit against that right wing uh, that you know that America is a conservative country, despite the the e- election outcomes. But I'm curious what you meant by given demographic trends there, how how that would lead to power being, you know, concentrated in GOP hands, uh, given that the country is is getting uh, more diverse and you know the younger generation is of course further to the left than the older generation. Not that that I mean that that happens every every single time, but. Um, the demographic trends, I'm kind of curious as to what you meant by that. Sure. So in that sense, I'm talking mostly about the Senate. I mean, obviously, the country as a whole, the general population is becoming more and more diverse. The The centers of population growth aren't really changing um, for the most part. There are some places, you know, in, in the Sun Belt, they're, they're growing a little bit faster than, than they were before. But the, the sort of broad outline of where people live in America and where people don't live isn't changing. And to the extent that there are places where the population is growing, the American population as a whole is getting more diverse. That's absolutely true. But the basic design of the Senate is not changing. And so what that means is that as places where there's already a lot of people grow larger and the population there grows, the, the, the vote power of each individual voter shrinks, just sort of mathematically. You, you get two senators per state, no matter how many people are in there. Um, and the power that belongs to the places that are more sparsely populated um, basically increases. Um, I think the democracy at the University of Virginia have, have sketched this out, I think, a, a couple of years ago, where they said that by 2040, 
um, about 70% of the seats in the Senate are going to be controlled by 33% of the American population or something like that. Um, just as a mechanical kind of uh, outcome of, of basic population trends. Um, and it's, it's difficult to change, right? So one of the things I say in the piece is that even if you can imagine a point where, and this is never going to happen, but even if it were possible, uh, you had a kind of bipartisan will or something to pursue constitutional amendments uh, that would alter um, the basic federal framework. Article 5 of the Constitution bars any changes to the Senate's basic design without the consent of the smallest states or the states that would have their representation in the Senate changed. So even if you wanted, even if you somehow got the political will to do constitutional amendments, in the case of the basic design of the Senate, there's not really anything you can do that within the framework the Constitution lays out. And so that's really what I'm talking about. That obviously the, the, the country is becoming more and more diverse. Um, I, I would argue ideologically the cult, the country is, is moving uh, to the left on a lot of important questions. But one of the reasons why the, the system is so frustrating and, and troubling is that that isn't going to necessarily translate into more political power uh, for you know the 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 the, the broad um, majority or plurality of the American electorate unless big changes are made to um, the Senate in particular, but the the American constitutional system as a whole. Yeah, certainly, and. And I think that that's a really interesting part of the article and, and also about the the general discussion here about January 6th and political violence and, and this conservative mon- minority not uh, really understanding political, well, maybe they do understand political reality uh, better than people who are expecting something different. But the, the filibuster... I mean, you brought this up earlier and you write that uh, the supermajority requirement, uh, you say that it can stall even wildly popular legislation and Republicans have so stacked the judiciary that the Supreme Court seems poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, an outcome that around 60% of the American people oppose. This kind of governing by minority or, I mean, you know, for Joe Manchin to be able to stop legislation going through the Senate, is under the rules, of course, you can do that. Uh, West Virginia has like 1.8 million residents. So that would mean that he represents 0.05% of the country. And yet he is still able to hold up this legislation by himself. Of course, there are also 50 GOP senators who who are just like a non-starter. And I understand that. But these these requirements and and the challenges of getting anything to, to kind of change the Senate through those rules and the Supreme Court being able to just kind of change the way we've understood American life for 50 plus years. It all seems to be, uh, well, 48 years, sorry. Uh, well, 49, I guess, 73. Um, but it all seems to be kind of snowballing into, into this situation where American democracy and, and the way that we understand the de- these democratic institutions is increasingly at odds with the way that the country operates. And I wonder what that means for the near future here, and not only for elections, not only for, you know, the next time that we're about to certify the results of a, of a presidential election, but what it means for these institutions of democracy that you 
point out are you know are already fraying a little bit and and are 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 having some ramifications on the country that they weren't intending but it doesn't seem like things are are correcting back to a rule of the majority or a democratic rule uh would you say that that's accurate do you do you see that kind of continuing yeah yeah i do i mean i think you know an important thing for people to understand about where we're at is that as troubling as the Republican voter suppression efforts are, as troubling as the efforts we're, sure we're going to see for sure in 2024 to sort of um, to, to skew the election and whoever the Republican nominee's favor um, is, as, as troubling as all of that kind of novel activity is, Republicans don't actually have to cheat in order to uh, to prevail in 2024 or to sort of get back the Senate or to take the House, right? They have these institutional advantages that are baked in so well that Joe Biden only won in 2020, not because he, he got, um, you know, more votes than Donald Trump, but you have the Democratic candidate functionally has to win by multiple points um, in order to have like an even chance of prevailing in the Electoral College, right? Um, so there's a sense in which the Republican efforts we're seeing now to, to screw the elections in their favor even more are overkill. Um, and, and I think the short-term trajectory is uh, Republicans coming back into power. I, I don't really see anything that's going to prevent that, absent um, Democratic efforts to rebalance um, the system in the ways that they can with the majority that they have now. If they're not going to do that, I, I don't think it's going to be very long before Republicans um, are back in, in the saddle in Washington. And again, that's not something that has to happen as a product of um, efforts to overturn an election or efforts to suppress the vote. I think, uh, although I think those things are going to happen, I think people should understand that the system is, is skewed in such a way that even if Republicans weren't doing those things, it would be more likely than not that Democrats would see their power erode substantially. Um, and that's what should really worry people. So the, the short-term trajectory, I guess, is, to, to sum it up, is not good any way you slice it. Um, and so I, I basically put most of my hopes in a, a kind of long-term vision of what American democracy can be, which sounds like very pie in the sky. But if there's any silver lining to where we're headed from my perspective, it's going to be more and more of the people I was talking about at the very beginning, the sort of generic Democrat who doesn't really think deeply about the, the design of the system, who kind of feels bad about Republicans, but isn't really thinking more broadly than that. I think that seeing Republicans come back to power um, and seeing the system continue to frustrate progress um, in the ways that it has you know, so far over the, over the course of the Biden administration I think at a certain point that has to encourage people to start thinking more ambitiously about what American democracy can and should be. Um, and so maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, uh, we're in a place where there are enough people thinking about that um, and thinking radically enough about that, that they're willing to push for broad transformative change. I don't know what that means concretely. My hope is that, you know, if we're not going to have a United States Senate in the way that we have it 100, 150 years from now, and we're not going to have because at a certain point of the course of the next century, 
the American people will have invested themselves in a movement to transform the political system uh, in a fundamental way. Yeah, I I certainly see the. I, I guess I'm a little bit more of a of, of of a doom and gloom kind of person because I wonder, like I I think that the counter to what you're saying is that, you know, if maybe maybe that is the long term hope, but but you know if if this far right movement that has kind of taken over the Republican Party over the last, say, 25, 30 years, I mean, arguably 40 plus, is ascendant in 2022, takes the, you know, the House and the Senate, or one, one if not both, and then the presidency in 2024. I mean, the question really is, is there anything left to really repair after that? Or are we in a kind of a post-democratic society? And I know that's a little doom and gloom, but I'm wondering if you, I mean, do you think that's a realistic fear or do you think? Oh, I that think that's absolutely can... realistic. Yeah. My, my, my running assumption is that Republicans, again, are going to come back into power in Washington and control it basically uncontested for like 10 to 15 years at least. Okay. That That's sort of my, my baseline assumption um, of what's going to happen. You know, not not everything's set in stone. Politics can be unpredictable. Who knows, you know, really what's going to happen. But that that is when when I wake up in the morning and think about where American politics is probably headed um, in the near term future. Um, that is that is what I assume as my starting point. Um, so you know, and, and the other thing too is about talking about a post democratic moment. I mean, I, I I have taken to avoiding using the phrase American democracy, partially because I just, I just don't know that that phrase isn't, is today right now, you know, not to talk about 2024. I, I don't know that that today is an accurate phrase or a phrase that re- is, is reflective of reality. I don't think we have a democratic system in the United States already today. Um, so it, it's, it's, What's, what's going to happen is not so much the move to a post-democratic society, but again, the anti-democratic elements of the American system working towards a conclusion that people should have been able to see as inevitable, given the kinds of people who are being empowered by, by political institutions, the mentality that those institutions fostered, the fact that the Republican Party has been allowed to um, propagate its, its, its propaganda um, you know, while Democrats, uh, you know, talk about, you know, needing a Republican Party and reasonable Republicans and bringing the country together and blah 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 blah, like all all of all of those things are pu- pulling is putting us um, to a conclusion that that people should have been able to see coming, and it won't be sort of the end of American democracy, but sort of the the American Republic. Um, a republic that from the beginning has been skewed to, to, to work for a certain kind of person and a republic that was designed for the American elite, um, finally dispelling the illusion that we were ever a democracy, really, to begin with. That's what I think is, is, is the best way to describe what, where we're headed. Um, but I'm also, in the long term, an optimist. Uh, partially because, again, I, I do believe that 
the experiences that we're about to have as a country will awaken something within a sort of mostly restive kind of center-left-ish liberal majority of of voters and, and, you know, political citizens out there. I think it's, it's going to shock people and encourage people to think more ambitiously about what we can be. Um, and you have to rest at least some hope in the fact that even if our systems and our institutions aren't democratic, there are more of us than there are of them. And if we all develop a kind of consciousness of that, and if we all tell ourselves that democratic principles are worth fighting for, we can prevail in the long run. Um, and that's, that's, that's what you have to hope as, as a political actor or somebody, or somebody who watches politics and writes about politics. Otherwise, what are we even doing here? <laughs> Otherwise, it yeah. really is all over. But, but I, I don't think it necessarily is. I, I did a Twitter spaces earlier today with Jedediah Purdy. Um, and, and one of the great points that he made in that, because he also did a piece for the Times on, on this very subject that was wonderful. Um, one of the points he made was that, look, you know, as bad as January 6th was, and as bad as we can expect political violence to get in years ahead, um, American history has been riddled with political violence and, you know, um, the, the forces of white supremacy uh, quashing, you know, the hopes of people who imagine that they're creating a, a multi-racial democracy in society. You know, that, that's just sort of the American story. But in spite of all of that, we were able to make strides in improving the system up to a point. I think that we've exhausted the potential improvements, but we, we did, through our history, manage to work through violence and against odds to build a better American polity. Um, and I think that we should have the hope of, of, of doing the same in the future. Um, the task, though, is, 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 is greater in the sense that we're not just looking, or I don't think we should, should only be looking to you know, amend the Constitution or to make this or that aspect of the system that's, that's inequitable a little bit better. Um, I, I think we should be looking towards the creation of something entirely new, which again sounds utopian and again sounds pie in the sky, but I don't, I don't know what else to to hope for, to work towards, right? Because the short term looks pretty bad at the federal level. So if you're going to involve yourself in politics, I think that that's, that's what you have to uh, project yourselves towards and, and, and to, to hope for and, and to work towards. Yeah, I mean, I, I might say that it sounds utopian. I don't think that it sounds pie in the sky. I, don't, I think there is a bit of a distinction to be made there uh, that what you're describing is not, I, I don't think that it's unrealistic. I think that it is just is it, it's a hopeful way of looking at the future, uh, you know, with the caveat of the ten to fifteen years of right wing rule first, which is, uh, you know, has its own uh, minimum. Yeah, right. <laughs> minimum. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we we have about fifteen minutes here, so. I just want to talk about a couple other points that you made here, which I thought were were really good. And um, I'm going to quote here. So democratic victories, by contrast, now seem to the right like underhanded usurpations of the will of the majority in President Biden's case by fraud and foreign voters and in Barack Obama's by a candidate who is himself a foreign imposition on the true American people. Uh, close quote. So, yes, definitely. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, reading that. And when I was reading all of this, that 
the the Bush election in 2000 is just I wonder if it was a real mistake by by Democrats to just kind of brush that one away after especially after 9/11 and to just kind of act as if that was that you know that was fair enough or you know any kind of talk about cheating and stuff was just kind of like pushed away and so that the Republicans have now been able to use uh, the language and the rhetoric of preserving elections uh, for their own good. And and you you directly make this point. You say, um, I'm just scrolling to this, but that uh, that that Trump and the GOP during the uh, during the riot, uh, yeah. So tellingly during his, this quote, tellingly during during his January sixth rally, Mr. Trump cannily deployed some of the language Democrats have used to denounce voting restrictions and foreign interference. Now, now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy, he said. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today we will see, uh, we will see whether Republicans stand strong for the integrity of our elections. And, well, first of all, I think it's, it's, it's important to note that that was politically quite clever of him to use that language. Um, but I wonder how much, you know, just kind of seeding the election in 2000, which was, you know, uh, just over 21 years ago now, but how much that kind of made it so the Democrats were just kind of giving up that ground to Republicans uh, in, in a way that is maybe having ramifications now that we can kind of look back to that. And of course, like today, Dick Cheney is being, you know, greeted by Democrats in, in the, in the house chamber. So there's, there's certainly that as well. Uh, but, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm curious what you think about how 2000 kind of fits into this and and whether or not you would agree with that uh statement that by seeding that election and by kind of you know kind of giving up on pushing on that Democrats kind of set themselves up for failure in the future. Yeah, you know, I think that however people feel about the ins and outs of conceding that election and the recounts whatever. I think I I, I don't think it could be argued um, that at a minimum, Democrats should not, I mean, it, it, at a minimum, Democrats should have questioned the electoral college system and the fairness of it and um, the extent to which it, it was really reflective of a democratic system more than more seriously than, than they did. You know, I mean, it, it seems like there were and, you know, I was I was very young at the time, but in in, in my reading of, of what was what happened after the election, it seems like you know you would get op-eds about it, you know, and you know law professors where we would talk about it, but it was not something the Democrats really took up as as a cause or as um, as a kind of grave injustice as much as um, you would you would have hoped. And so, at a minimum, they should have done that um, for sure. And you know, I I do think that the fact that the democratic party hasn't really spoken in principle about democracy um, in a way that allows them to sort of claim democratic values as fully theirs is something that has allowed Donald Trump and Republicans to claim that they um, rather are the real guardians of democracy and democratic processes, right? In the way that you're talking about if Democrats had consistently over the last 20 years or so 
said, look, here's what democracy means. It means an equal vote for every single American, no matter who they are, no matter where they are in the country. Um, and we need to reform our institutions to really reflect that because that's what democracy really means. Um, it would have been harder for conservatives to just sort of like trot out the Constitution as its own argument in the way that they do now. Um, because Democrats do this dance where they want democracy, but they're also protecting the Constitution, which is an anti-democratic document, but nobody really wants to say that, and blah, blah, blah. Like they're, 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 they're split internally and ideologically you know, on, on that question, which creates enough confusion that somebody like Donald Trump can get out there on the 6th and say that he is actually the, 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 the guardian, the lion defending democracy from this, uh, from this upheaval. Um, so I think, I think you're right that there, there's a sense in which a democratic, um, I don't know what to call it, just sort of democratic <laughs> strategic ineptitude or, or sort of ideological confusion or lack of ideological clarity um, has, has muddled people's sense of what democracy even means to begin with. And, and people can sort of lay claim to it as they'd like to, to their own political ends. Without anybody, without anybody sort of representing themselves fully as, or or authentically as, um, embodying democratic values, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's really perceptive, and and I agree. I, I, I you know, somebody of my generation, I was definitely very. Uh, the two thousand election was was pretty politically radicalizing. Watching that happen, and and everything that's happened kind of since then. Uh, in with voting and with you know if quote unquote American democracy, I would I would agree with you that that's a misnomer. It's not really what it is, but uh, for you know for the sake of of uh, brevity. Um, but yeah, I think that just the strategic ineptitude that you talk about, the politically strate- politically inept strategy that the Democrats take is, is pretty distressing. Um, and you mentioned too, that there are uh, Democrats who argue that significantly changing our system would alienate Republicans. And that in order to do this would be such a huge political lift that it's just not really particularly realistic to expect them to do it. Um, which really is kind of guaranteeing this 2022-2024 GOP right-wing takeover of the country for the minimum 10-15 years that you're talking about. And, I, you know, I guess that you're talking about this kind of hopeful moment, and, and I kind of want to bring us back to this so we can end on, on, on a bit of a, a happier note, but you're talking about this political movement and this political ideology that that could presumably kind of spring up at as maybe as a reaction to to this decade plus uh, decade or decades plus of right-wing rule to kind of upend and to change to, to again change the political system in the country and of course looking at it right now for all the reasons that you detail in the article and for all the reasons that we've talked about, it's very difficult to see how that would happen uh, with the political will that's, that's necessary to do something like that. 
do you have any kind of a roadmap for this or, or any kind of an expectation? Or is this just kind of a general sense of, of American history and political history that that this is kind of the way the pendulum will swing back? And um, which which I think is is completely legitimate. But I'm just wondering if, if you think that there's a specific roadmap or if it's just kind of a general sense of political history. Um, I mean, it's an aspiration. It's a hope. I mean, I, I don't know that it's a way that the pendulum definitely will or has to swing back. It's just kind of the most optimistic reading of future events, <laughs> the most optimistic potential outcome, but, and, but one that we can work towards if we sort of set it out for ourselves as as a place that, where we can go. One thing I'll say, too, is that you know, one of the reasons why I was I was hesitant to to use the, the word ineptitude on the part of Democrats is that, you know, I, I think that part of it is an aptitude, but I also think that there is also within the Democratic Party an apprehension about what democracy would actually mean, you know. I mean, it's not just Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the Senate right now who have been, you know, um, hostile to or skeptical of changes to the Senate bill buster, for instance. Joe Biden himself uh, has been and has only recently moved that position. I think that more broadly, there's a sense amongst a lot of Democrats that the Senate, um, you know, isn't isn't that bad. They can probably win it eventually, and you know, then then it'll be okay, right? I think I think I think there's an apprehension too within the party um, about what it would mean for the the broad public and ordinary people to sort of reliably get their way on policy. Um, what would that mean? That would probably mean taxes to be higher on the rich, right? It would mean that it would mean that workers would probably have more power in the economy that they do have right now, you know. And, and what would that mean for the interest groups, um, uh, the corporations uh, that sustain democratic politics, and and that many of these politicians believe that they work for, right? So you know, I think that within the Democratic Party too, some of the inability to take what we've been talking about seriously. I think comes from um, an ideological centrism that's not just about norms and um, the constitution, but also uh, it, it's partially about economics. And I think that it's very difficult to talk about democracy in a political and civil sense um, without also talking about the alignment of power within the American economy and the extent to which working people um, get a say not only in the ballot box, but in the places that, where they work and, and uh, where they try to make their livings, right? Everybody who's ever examined democratic um, theory seriously has come to the conclusion that it, it's hard to separate those two things out. And, and democracy in the political and civil sense doesn't survive for very long, if it exists really at all, if there isn't um, a real... Um, if, if, if ordinary people don't also have power um, within the economy. And, and so that's, that's, that's I think, the, the only kind of roadmap or the only kind of condition or the, the only kind of groundwork that I can say definitively that we're going to have to set for ourselves if we want democracy to succeed in this country. The Constitution is the way that it is. Because in 1787, the most elite people in the country, the wealthiest people in the country decided that they wanted a system that was going to be less accessible to poor debtors than the Articles Confederation had been. And so they erect all of these barriers to the public will um, manifesting itself in political outcomes. Right? That, that is why the Constitution is the way that it is. 
Um, and so if we're going to do better the next time around, whenever that is, if that's 40, 50, 100, whatever years from now it is, we're going to have to do better in, in bringing ordinary people to the table, ordinary working people to the table um, to design uh, better political institutions. But also, I, I don't think that we're actually going to succeed if we haven't also succeeded in, in dramatically boosting the power of the working class uh, within our economic institutions as well, if that makes sense. I know that's a kind of rambling and long-winded way of, <laughs> of saying what I wanted to say, but but that's, that's I think, intrinsic and important to the conversation as well, and something that I don't think people talk about enough. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, this has been really great. I'm, I'm really, really happy that you were able to join us uh, today, uh, especially having written that article. I, I, I'm glad you were able to carve out some time for us. Um, so Osita, uh, I know that you just in the last couple of minutes, I know that you have a book coming out. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And can you tell people where to, where to find your work in, in the meantime? Sure. So the, the book, the book is, is going to be a book length treatment of all the things that we've just been rambling about for the past, for the past hour. I'm still in the process of writing it. I don't know when the release date is, is going to be, but you'll certainly hear from me on social media um, when that's going to happen. In the meantime, you can find my work um, at the New Republic, but also other places. I mean, I'm, I'm writing for multiple publications now. This is my first piece for the Times. Um, if you want uh, updates on, on my writing, you can follow me on Twitter at Osita Wanevu, and you can also subscribe to my newsletter. Um, it's osidawanevu.ghost.io. Um, there's a link to it in my Twitter profile um, that you can access, and that has you know it'll keep you updated on my writing. But also every week, I'll, I'll send my thoughts on on politics and other things to to subscribers. Absolutely, and and I'll, I'll link to that in the show description as well. All right, Osita, thank you so much, and um, have a wonderful evening. And for everybody who who listened, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. All right, bye bye. Thanks for having me.